If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The fact that the Ottomans presided over an empire that dominated vast tracts of three continents is remarkable enough. That the empire survived for seven centuries is more impressive still. So what was the secret of their success? Well, for today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, we're delving into the history of the Ottoman Empire with Eugene Rogan, director of the Middle East Centre at St Anthony's College, University of Oxford, and also the author of The Fall of the Ottomans. Putting your questions to Eugene was BBC History magazine's production editor, Spencer Mizzen. So Eugene, we're, we're here to talk about the history of the Ottoman Empire, which lasted for more than 600 years. So this is a, a huge subject and is, is one we're going to try and cover in less than an hour, which is obviously going to be a bit of a challenge, but we'll, we'll, we'll see how we get on with that. Um, now, my first question is possibly the toughest one. And it's one that ranks highly among popular internet search queries. And that is, what was the Ottoman Empire? So I wonder if over the next few minutes or so, 
you could just give us a, a, a potted history of the empire, taking in the chief milestones in its rise and fall. Well, the Ottoman Empire is one of the great world empires and certainly the most important Islamic empire in modern history. And there's a standard narrative that talks about a rise and fall of this empire, where the empire is launched by 10 great sultans, starting with the eponymous founder Osman, and leading to the reign of Suleiman the Magnificent, and that the next 10 sultans basically bring it down. And within that, I think it's probably better to define certain key periods of the development of the empire and how it fits into world history. So if we want to go back right to the beginnings, between the 1280s and the 1350s, you have these hordes of nomadic Turks, horsemen, galloping across Anatolia, challenging the Christian Byzantine Empire and driving it back. They establish a kind of principality around the town of Bursa near the Sea of Marmara and create a kind of territory that comes to be known by the name of its founder, Osman, as the Ottoman Principality. Between the 1350s and the 1450s, you have a great period of expansion across modern Turkey, basically, east to the Caucasus, south to the Aegean, west to Bulgaria, Thrace, Macedonia. You see this Turkish principality really beginning to press the Christian Byzantine Empire back. And it's really in the reign of Mehmed II between 1451 and 1481, where Mehmed the Conqueror is going to finally deal the death blow to the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, the seat of Eastern Orthodox Christendom, falls in 1453. It's one of those great turning points in world history. And I think this is when the Ottomans come onto the rest of Europe's map as a clear and present danger, and it's only going to grow. The next period is going to be the reign of Selim I between 1512, 1520, when He takes on the other major Muslim empire of the time, the Mamluks, based in Egypt, and adds all the Arab world to the Ottoman Empire. It's at this time that northern Iraq, all of Syria, the Arabian province of Hejaz, with the holy cities of Mecca and Medina, as well as Egypt, come to the Ottoman Empire. And it's becoming an empire that's going right around the Mediterranean. And that reaches its apogee in the reign of Suleiman the Magnificent, 1520 to 1560s, where The conquests are extended to Serbia and Hungary, so we're going deep into Eastern Europe at this point, as well as around the Black Sea, um, extends right through the rest of Iraq, Baghdad and Basra, and right across North Africa. At this point, we can talk about truly an empire spanning three continents of Europe, Asia, and Africa. That's the high point. I mean, from the 1560s to the 1680s, there's a sense of this rising empire being at that moment of neither rising nor falling, greater challenges from its European neighbors, Russia and the Habsburgs. And in the 1680s to the 1770s, the Ottomans really begin to lose all their wars and they begin to lose territory. And they begin to sign treaties that are ceding the lands that had been part of the empire in the reign of Suleiman. That's going to lead to growing awareness in the Ottoman Empire. They're going to have to change the way they're doing things. And from the 1780s to the 1900s, you have a period of reforms that are going to really redefine the Ottomans' relations with its European neighbors. And then in 1908, a constitutional revolution brings the Young Turks to power. That's going to be right up through the First World War in 1918. This intriguing 
intensely nationalist uh, period of the Ottoman Empire, where it's challenged through war after war, until finally you have uh, the defeat of the Ottomans in World War I and the invasion of Turkish Anatolia by Greece and other powers, leading to a Turkish war of independence from 1919 to 1922, which yep. ends in the victory of the nationalist Kemalist forces of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, but that will spell the end of the Ottoman Empire. And it's in 1922 that this great history of this world power, this world empire, finally comes to an end. So there, in a kind of potted, banded history, you have a sense of the rise and fall of this empire and the dynamics that drove it. Thanks, Eugene. You did a splendid job of covering off six centuries in a few minutes there. So thank you very much. So we know that the Ottomans forged an incredibly powerful and enduring empire. But Bezan252 on Instagram wants to know why. I mean, they ask, why were the Ottomans so formidable at the height of their power? Well, what were the secrets of their success? Well, I think if you look at the very beginnings of the Ottoman Empire, what gave them the edge over their neighbors was they were this fast-moving mounted horde. There's this Turkish tribal grouping, very... Uh, closely bound together under their leadership with a common ideological drive. And they were fast moving. I mean, if, if you are a defender in a town and you're hit by a horde of cavalry, your chances aren't great in the 1200s, early 1300s. Sure. The fighters of, with the Ottomans were beneficiaries of conquest, which means they got, they got spoils. If you conquer a town and you're allowed to plunder the, the the riches of the town and share it out among the, the conquering army, it's a great motivator. And so we find this fast-moving army of conquest getting richer and, and benefiting from conquest in a way which only bound them closer to their, uh, to their commanders. Let's not forget the unifying force of Islam. Though they were in many ways very heterodox in their Islam, these, these early Turkic hordes from Central Asia were hardly coming from the seat of Islamic orthodoxy. But for them, even their hybrid vision of Islam gave them a kind of religious motive. They saw themselves as fighting God's wars. If they died, they believed they would go to heaven. If they, uh, if they won, then they would have Islamically sanctioned plunder or booty. And so I think Islam played a really important uh, unifying factor. They were a successful army and success breeds success. When you have confidence sure. that you've conquered and conquered and conquered again, the next town you come to, you know you're bad. You know you are scary and you yeah. know you're going to win this town too. And I think they had that victorious attitude. And then I guess the last thing I would say is they were really quick to adapt to new technologies. And here it's you know, in my book, The Arabs, I open with the engagement between the Ottomans and the Mamluks, just north of the Syrian city of Aleppo. And it was a clash between a gunpowder army, the Ottomans, using muskets and such cannons as you had in the 1500s, yeah. and the Mamluks, who were still completely wedded to chivalrous notions of fighting hand-to-hand -hand with swords. And the guy with the gun is always going to defeat the guy with the sword. It's just unfair that way, but they adapted <laughs> to new technologies in ways that gave them the edge over more archaic armies, and they swept. So, I mean, I, I think you can really chalk up the period of conquest right up through the 1500s to this sort of combination of factors that made the Ottomans absolutely formidable. Now, you mentioned in your, your introduction um, 
the contest and a rivalry between the Ottomans and the Byzantine Empire. Now, one of the most significant events in that contest was the fall of Constantinople. How significant an event in European and global history was that? And what role did it did it play in supercharging the Ottomans' rise to power? I think the fall of Constantinople confirmed a trend, which was to say the Byzantines were being pressed back on all fronts by the Ottomans. By the time you get to 1453, no one really thought the Byzantines had a chance. And yet, when their capital city falls, it is an earthquake. It's an event of such magnitude, it sent shockwaves right across the rest of Europe because suddenly the Mediterranean was becoming a Muslim sea. And the Ottomans, now based in the seat of the Eastern Roman Empire, had really emerged as one of the greatest world empires in the 15th century world. They clearly were the greatest Muslim empire in history. They had succeeded where every Muslim army before them had failed in conquering the Byzantine capital of Constantinople. And I think for the Ottomans, it gave them a sense of their historic distinction and purpose. They were a different kind of empire, and the sky was the limit. There, There really was no force that could stop their their momentum, their growth. And, and subsequent uh, sultans after Mehmed II would only prove that. We talk about Salim and Suleiman and the conquests that took place under their rule. And all of this just further extends the Ottomans' control over the Mediterranean and makes them truly the scourge of the European world, not just of Asia and Africa. So the fall of Constantinople is a major turning point in history. It is the replacement of one great world empire, the Byzantine, had been for centuries uh, dominating from Constantinople, and and its replacement with a Muslim empire, the Ottoman Empire, that would come to to dominate the, the Mediterranean world in no uncertain terms. So that leads me nicely on to um, our next question, which is from Tipao on Instagram. What were the Ottomans' chief cultural influences in Europe? Well, it's quite interesting to know what Europe felt comfortable taking from the Ottoman Empire. In the first encounters, I mean, I think there really was a sense of lining the Ottomans up as an Islamic empire, and as such, the antithesis of Christian Europe. And of course, when we're talking, you know, 16th, 17th century, it really was a Christian Europe. And so it was almost illegitimate to be borrowing from the Ottoman world in this period where it really emerges into the Mediterranean world. And I would say it's not until the 18th century that Europe begins to feel sufficiently uh, at, at uh, an equilibrium with the Ottoman threat. By the 18th century, the Ottomans had been more or less contained as a threat against the monarchies of Europe. They'd lost enough battles against the Habsburgs in Austria, the Romanovs in Russia. And now there were things about the refined lifestyle, the the sense of elegance, the exotica of the Ottoman Empire that really appealed to Europeans. And so you'll see it in things like the tulip era of the 18th century, where Ottoman notions of leisure are taken on by Europeans who begin to imitate the, the highly formalized gardens of the Ottomans. You'll, you'll really see landscaping being influenced by the Ottomans. The tulip itself right. is to become a craze in, in the Netherlands, uh, as yeah. we know. It, it's something that they borrow from the Ottomans. The Ottomans had a great love for the tulip. You'll see it as a recurring motif in 
their um, Isnik uh, pottery. Um, that pottery, I think, is another area of, uh, of cultural influence we can come back to. Um, modes of consumption. There, there are certain products like tobacco and coffee that the Ottomans really influenced. And I think there's a notion of uh, an a la Turkica fashion that sweeps 18th century Europe and really is picked up by composers from Mozart through Rossini in the operas they begin to compose, playing on Turkic or Ottoman themes uh, and the fascination with the harem, the takeoff of um, Orientalist art, which will begin in the late 18th and really develop in the 19th century. The, the fascination with this Islamic exotic other replaces the fear in the 18th century that I think allows the Ottomans to really begin to influence European cultures in clear and distinctive ways. Great. Another question that came in on Instagram was, under whose rule did the empire reach its zenith? And can you just briefly introduce us to a couple of the characters that presided over the empire while it was at its height? Well, I think consensus among historians... Right, going right back to the 18th, 19th century, would say that it's really Suleiman the Magnificent who represents the apogee of Ottoman power and the greatest extent of the empire, its most influence, its army at its uh, greatest uh, strength. Suleiman is, is a wonderfully rich and ambiguous character and, and we we actually know a great deal about him. We, we know a lot about his personal life. Uh, he was a man who loved men and who loved women. So we know that he, from quite early in his life, had a deep passion for one of his male slaves, a man named Ibrahim, who was uh, purchased as a uh, Caucasian youth and presented to the Sultan as a gift. And it's quite clear that there was a very deep love between the two of them. They were reputed to have shared a bed. Um, and later in his life, uh, he will fall deeply in love with a female slave, uh, Russian or Caucasian woman, known to us as Roxolana. She was known in the Turkish world as Haseki Sultana, the Sultan's favorite. But clearly someone with whom he had a love match. He took no other sure. wife uh, with, with Roxolana. They had the children together. She was clearly very influential in his life. So, you know, he's a three-dimensional character. It, it, his reign is marked by some of the greatest monument building in the Ottoman Empire associated with him. We, we know about his battles, the way he leads the conquest of, of Hungary and takes the Ottoman Empire deep into Europe. But the, maybe the most interesting thing to say about Suleiman, we, we know of him as the Magnificent, which is the way that Europeans saw him. He was a great imperial lord, monarch, ruling over yeah. vast territories with a very rich culture. But for the Ottoman world, he was known as the lawgiver, Kanuni. And what they associate him with is really establishing the rule of law and law as a sort of rational uh, standardized form uh, of the relationship between the state and its people. And, and you know, in that, we would really could really see him as a, an Enlightenment European ruler, bringing the rule of law that will shift the balance between government and people. So quite interesting that for the Ottoman world, uh, he's Kanuni. And lastly, uh, he's really the man who establishes a court culture in Istanbul, where until Suleiman, 
the principle of succession was the first of the uh, princes of the household, you know, when a sultan died, all of his sons would have been sent out to be provincial governors so that they would learn statecraft in the field. And then when word of the death of the sultan reached them, they'd get on the horses and gallop back to Istanbul or Constantinople. And the first one there would be crowned the sultan and he'd kill all of his brothers so that there'd be no challenger to threaten his position as sultan. This fratricidal succession is pretty horrific. And it tells yeah. you something about Suleiman that he ends that. And many will say that this is when you have a major shift in the power and the ability of sultans, because from this point forward, it'll be the sons of the ruler as raised in the palace within the confines of the harem and without the experience in the field. And that's going to change Ottoman methods of statecraft. And a lot of people feel to the disadvantage of the virile conquering empire of the first 10 sultans. I wouldn't want to take that argument too far, but I think it's really important to see how you're moving away from the campaigning sultans who would take the lead and take their army out to the field. And now we're going to see princes of the household given their education in the palace with all of the limits that that imposes on Ottoman methods of rule. Sure. Now, you mentioned Suleiman's introduction of the rule of law. That kind of leads me on to a question we had submitted on Twitter from Jorn Icorn, who asks, how did the Ottomans succeed in maintaining such a large empire with so many peoples for more than 500 years? I mean, was that introduction of a rule of law part of the secrets of their success? It, it definitely was. And there was a notion of a sort of circle of equity, which is to have balance in government. First of all, there's there's got to be justice. And then for there to be justice, there has to be order. And for there to be order, you, you need to have policing and the military and whatnot. And for the police and the military to do their job, then... Um, you know, there there has to be consensus between the people over their rulers, so that they'll pay their taxes, that you have the money to pay the soldiers. And for that consensus to be held, there has to be justice. And you have this sort of circle yeah. of equity. And so the rule of law is a big part of confirming to the people that their rulers are ruling fairly and justly. Here, I think Islam, again, plays a really important part, because when we talk about law in the Ottoman Empire... Sharia or Islamic law is a very important part of that. It's not the unique part, but and it grounds law in the legitimacy of religion. And that's an easy sell. Sure. But let us also remember, for the first four centuries of this empire, it's a great military power. And with the conquest and the expansion of territory, you have more farmlands paying taxes into the central government. You have larger population contributing manpower to the army. And it's a great military power for the first four centuries. There is a century where you have a shift of balance and power that favors Russia and Europe between the 1680s and the 1770s. But then you have a period of reform that brought the empire into the 19th century, really, through, you know, it might have been relatively weaker than its European neighbors, but arguably the Ottoman Empire, through that age of reform, grew stronger in its own right. You know, if compared to its past, it was stronger in the 19th century than it had been. Yeah even if it wasn't as strong as its European rivals. And you had a high degree of consent from Ottoman subjects until you get the rise of nationalism in the 19th century that begins to eat away at the consensus between the subject peoples, particularly among the Christian subject peoples in the Balkans. 
And yeah. it'll lead to fragmentation. This is where the word balkanization comes from. It refers to the way in which nationalist movements and the Christian principalities of the Balkans begins to define themselves in nationalist terms and to fight for secession from the Ottoman Empire. The last thing to say is, in the later 19th century, I think Britain plays a really important role in preserving the integrity of the Ottoman Empire. You had some Philo-Turkic prime ministers, that's part of it, but you had a conviction among the British political elite that the Ottoman Empire was an important buffer zone, keeping Russia out of the Mediterranean world, and that if you were to allow European powers to begin to do a land grab at the Ottomans' expense, they'd soon fall out among each other over geostrategic territory currently under Ottoman rule. So better to have a weak Ottoman Empire preserved than to let it collapse and provoke fights. And in that way, you can see, you know, in those last decades of the Ottoman Empire, it was very important to have the Europeans actively preserving uh, the Ottoman Empire. That's where World War I is really the turning point, because for the first time, the European powers agree that in defeating the Ottoman Empire, they will dismember it. So, you know, that'll be a big turning point. Europe's willingness to hold the Ottomans together because it's suited their purposes is probably a part of that Ottoman survival as well. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And in a sense, what the Ottomans did was they took a punt. They bet on Germany winning. Had Germany won, the Ottomans would have been in a really good position to renegotiate territories lost to Britain and France over the previous decades. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now, Cato Jones on Twitter asked, what was the status of women in the Ottoman Empire? Were they allowed to be educated? Are there any notable women of the Ottoman Empire? Well, I think the status of women in the Ottoman Empire is such a rich and fascinating question. And I think historians in the past 30, 40 years, in line with the growing interest in a gendered history, 
have really been doing sure. a lot of research that's given us a much better sense. I mean, if you'd asked me this question 50 years ago, I would have said, women? What women? 50% of the population, <laughs> and they just weren't written into our history. Yeah. So that's changed. Sure. And what we're, we're learning is, again, there's a class split here. If you look at working women, the, their life stories are less preserved because they were illiterate, but they were out in the marketplace or in the workplace playing the important role of providers for their families. You'll find them in court records. They will go to pursue their needs or their interests, whether it has to do with their inheritance when a husband dies or negotiating their divorces or securing the welfare of their children. Um, so we have a sense of the struggles and survival of women, of the 98% of women who were non-elites. Elite sure. women, you know, they lived a life of confinement. They lived in a separate part of ha the household, whether it was in the imperial palace, the harem section, which was the areas in which the wives, the female relatives and the concubines of the sultan would share quarters uh, with their male contact limited to their family or to eunuchs. And, uh, and that's replicated across the empire in elite households who don't have the means to recreate the harem of the imperial palace, but where women had their own quarters and where the interaction with men was very mediated by space and by convention. Yeah. And then when they move out of their households, it's um, under veils, the, the ashmak or the face covering, uh, covering over their bodies. Um, so they would navigate public spaces as veiled and indistinguishable people. Um, and, and so I would say, you know, things would go right until the 19th century. It's really only in the 19th century that women would get access to education. Right. Foreign missionaries played an important role in opening schools that they hoped to use to win converts. And they used the school as a way of reaching young girls as well as young boys and created girls' schools as well as boys' schools. The Ottomans responded by seizing back the initiative, opening schools for girls and boys. And, um, and I, I think it's only then that we'll have, you know, the emergence of, of women who become known in their own rights. We, we talked about Roxalana, and she represents the kind of uh, Valide Sultan, the, 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 the spouse or the mother of the Sultan, as a very known and influential person. And the yeah. mothers of Sultans were known in any given age, but are not well known to us today. Roxalana Haseki stands out as a side. But if you're looking for, you know, women famous for their own accomplishments, not who they married, then it's really in the early 20th century where you'll have someone like the novelist Halide Edip, born in the 1880s, dies in the 1960s, comes through the Ottoman education system, becomes a journalist and a novelist, very active nationalist, very controversial for her role in the Armenian genocide, where she created a school in Syria for children of Armenian families who were forcibly re-educated and converted to Islam to Turkify them. So she's, she's seen as being part of a genocide policy, which has made her legacy controversial. But, you know, yeah. here is a woman whose um, fame and uh, standing is a reflection of her own intellectual abilities and her education. I think, you know, it's going to be really in the Kemalist era in the 1920s and 30s where a modernist Turkish republic is going to really promote women's rights and women's place in public space. 
uh, in the Ottoman era, it was really still in its infancy. But again, so much more coming out, such interesting research being done on the status of women in the Ottoman Empire. Sure. Look, did, did the Ottomans preside over an era of great scientific and cultural progress? I mean, would that be fair to say? I think at first reflection, people will say, well, well, no. I mean, obviously the Ottomans didn't have the kind of Enlightenment philosophers that made 18th century Britain and France such beacons of knowledge and learning. They didn't have an industrial revolution. They were borrowers of technologies from the West. And so it's important to push back on that narrative and say, no, actually, uh, if, if we look particularly at a period where the Ottomans were the dominant culture in the 16th, 17th century, 15th, 16th, 17th century, there, there are certain areas where you can really see the Ottomans playing a key role as a crossroad of ideas and technologies that brought ideas from as far away as China, India, Persia, through Ottoman Turkey and Anatolia, and then onto Western Europe. And we really see this in things like ceramics. And it's easy to underestimate the importance of ceramics in the daily lives. But, you know, before you had um, steel and whatnot, so much of what we did was through pottery and the, the, the kind of wares that were being made in China, the kind of colors they could achieve in their glazes were adopted and adapted by the Ottomans and taken so much further. Everyone got the indigo of blue that the Chinese were great to master. But you try and make a red glaze that would give you a, a true red color. You know, uh, The Ottomans managed it. And as soon as they did, it was taken up by everyone else in Europe. And I think Iznik pottery, which is prized by collectors today and features in museums across the world, is, is one area where the Ottomans were borrowing from the knowledge of others and then innovating on it to make something that would influence ceramicists right across Europe. There's so many ways in which you can trace the influence of Iznik on the ceramic traditions of Italy, France, and Spain. So that Mediterranean transmission zone and technology is just one example. Another would be cartography. You know, we... we so focused on the da Gamas and the Magellans that we don't do justice to the role of the Ottoman uh, cartographers like Piri Reis, who, born in the 1460s, dies in the 1550s, left a really important body of knowledge of navigation and cartography. His 1513 world map is one of the very earliest depictions of North America we have from cartographers. And in that age, if if you were trying to hack into the knowledge of another society, navigation and cartography was what every you know, hacker of the day would be going for. The Ottomans had really been able to take the Portuguese knowledge, derive their own, and come up with cartography that was really at the cutting edge. And Piri Reis uh, really represents that. And I guess the last example I would stress is in architecture. And here, the exemplar would be the famous Ottoman architect Mimar Sinan, or architect Sinan, whose work corresponds to the reign of Selim I and Suleiman the Magnificent, whose masterpieces include 
the Selemia Mosque in Edirne, ancient Adrianople, which is the only mosque he achieves with a dome even greater than the Hagia Sophia, the, the great Byzantine basilica that is made a mosque in Istanbul after the conquest of Mehmed II. Um, he also did the Suleymaniye Mosque that dominates the skyline of Istanbul, as well as countless commercial centers, bathhouses, schools. Mimar Sinan was incredibly prolific, and the work he did was architecture of just such a, a world-leading order. And the very soundness of his architecture is reflected in how many of his buildings survive down to the present day. So, you know, it was very clear that the Ottomans presided over an era of scientific and cultural progress and were the envy of Europe right up until the 17th century. And, um, you know, after that, the influences will change. It's more of an exchange, and there's a greater drawing of ideas from abroad. But um, clearly, the Ottomans deserve recognition for their, their own cultural and scientific advances. Sure. Now, you mentioned cartography there. Uh, we've had a question from Franchise505 on Twitter asking, why didn't the Ottomans try their hand at colonizing the New World? That's a really good question. I think the New World was simply too far from the Ottoman world for them to have aspired to extend their authority across the Atlantic. The Ottomans really saw themselves as a Mediterranean power. And if you think about it, their frontiers went right across North Africa to the frontiers of Morocco, which always stayed out of Ottoman rule, and then right up to Eastern Europe, including Croatia and Bosnia and Serbia and all these territories. So that was the focus of their energies. They, they were overwhelmingly reliant until the 19th century on um, ships with oars and sails. So the, the galley was the dominant Ottoman vessel. You weren't going to cross the Atlantic with galleys. So, I mean, I, I think it went beyond there, if you like, the imagination of domination that the Ottomans had. They saw themselves very much as inheritors of an empire that the Romans created, and, and they, they compare themselves to Caesar's, and Caesar never went for North America. Sure. Okay, here's a question um, from Elizabeth Kalava. She asks, what were the consequences to the Ottoman Empire of losing the Siege of Vienna in 1683? Well, the failure to take Vienna really did put the high watermark to Ottoman conquest. And, you know, I think for the, the reigning Sultan Mustafa IV, it was a, a failure which compromised the legitimacy of his sultanate. And as he retreated from Vienna, um, you know, it was to rethink the, the way the Ottoman Empire would, um, would, would present its place in the world. It, it would never attempt again a conquest against the neighboring European empires. So it accepted containment. And containment was the end of the expansionist ethos that had defined the Ottomans to that point, and the idea that because they were carrying Islam into the lands of the non-believers, uh, those who did not believe in the message of Islam, that theirs was a rightly guided cause. Now, their, their righteousness would had to be concentrated within their own frontiers, and indeed, they would find themselves challenged within their frontiers 
by the growing military strength, particularly of the Romanovs and the Habsburgs. And as they begin to lose territory, and this will really reach uh, a critical point in the 1770s when defeat to Russia forces the Ottomans for the first time to cede Muslim territory. The, the Khanate of Crimea in 1774 is absorbed into the Russian Empire. And how you justify surrendering Muslim territories to non-Muslims is going to be a challenge to the Ottomans. That's a real, it's a very hard sell, and it's a real legacy of them having been turned back from the gates of Vienna. So it seems that they were in some ways victims of um, the rise also of nationalism. Would that be fair to say in the in the 18th and 19th century? I mean, Adam Kropofronius on Twitter asks, were it not for the First World War, did the Ottoman Empire have a realistic chance of adapting to modern times? Or was it was it doomed to fail and to fall apart because of the rise of nationalism all over the all over Europe? I really would argue that the Ottoman state was viable within its Turkish and Arab provinces. Right. That nationalism was emerging among the Muslim communities and the Muslim ethnicities of the Ottoman Empire, particularly Turks. There was a distinct Turkish nationalism that had been emerging since the 19th century. Uh, among Kurds, a growing cultural politics. Though again, Kurds have been so hugely assimilated into the Ottoman world as Sunni Muslims partners with Turks, that theirs yeah. was really not a separatist movement uh, by 1914. And among Arabs, who were for the first time beginning to talk in terms of separatist nationalism. But I think even the Kurds and Arabs were bound to the Ottoman state by their greater fear of, if they come out of the Ottoman umbrella, they would be at risk of being absorbed into European empires. They had watched yep. what had happened in North Africa from the French conquest of Algeria in 1830 through the conquest of Tunisia in 1881, of British conquest of Egypt in 1882. You have the Italians taking Libya in 1911, and finally France takes Morocco in 1912, which meant that every inch of the Mediterranean coast of North Africa had gone under the power of a European empire before World War yep. I. There was very little doubt among Arabs in Iraq or in Syria or in Hejaz that if they were to make a bid to separate from the Ottomans, that they could preserve their independence from European imperialism. So yeah. what they were doing, the Arabs in particular, was the politics of identity and cultural assertion. They wanted a better deal for Arabs, but within the Ottoman Empire. And yeah. so I would say, but for World War I and losing the war to the Entente powers, who spent a lot of that war discussing among themselves how they would carve up the Ottoman Empire, Sykes-Picot and all of that. You know, that yeah. was to ensure uh, an amicable partition of Ottoman territory. When they defeated the Ottomans, they were determined to partition and destroy that, that empire. But, um, but for that, no, I actually think that the Ottomans probably could have preserved their hybrid multi-ethnic state in the Turkish and Arab provinces. Now, N.R. Darcy wants to know, why did the Ottomans decide to side with Germany and Austro-Hungary at the outset of the First World War? What was their motivations for that? It's such a good question. And at the outset of the war, it's very clear that 
it was really a, a conflict between European powers. The Ottomans didn't really have a dog in that fight. Yeah. So the alternative of staying neutral in that war would have seemed the logical choice for an Ottoman Empire that had a revolution in 1908, a war against Italy in 1911, and fought two Balkan wars in 1912 and 1913. They were knackered by 1914 and had very little fight left in them. So neutrality would have been the sensible choice. What bid against neutrality was the Russian threat. Russia had watched Ottoman weakness against particularly the successor states in the Balkans, Bulgaria, Greece, Serbia. The fact that these little powers that had once been Ottoman provinces could club together and actually defeat the Ottomans in 1912 suggested that the Ottomans were on their last legs. And the Russians were really concerned that another country would get to Constantinople and add it to their territory. They particularly worried about Greece, the kind of Greek ties to Byzantium, but they thought yeah. that Bulgaria might be a contender as well. And basically, Russia wanted for its own empire the ancient city of Constantinople, the Ottoman capital Istanbul, and the strategic straits linking the Black Sea to the Mediterranean. This is the Bosphorus, the Sea of Marmara, and the Dardanelles. And this yeah. had become Russian policy in February of 1914 that in the event that there would be a general European conflict, Russia would take advantage of the fog of war to seize those territories before another country yeah. got there. The assumption is the Ottomans were on the verge of collapse, and they wanted Constantinople for cultural capital. This would reinforce Russia's claim to being the mother church for the Eastern Orthodox faith, uh, but also very genuine geostrategic and economic capital in controlling the, the strategic straits and giving Russia from sure. the Black Sea access to the Mediterranean world. And the Ottomans knew this. They knew that this was a declared Russian war aim with a generalized European conflict unfolding in the Balkans in the summer of 1914. Many of the young Turk leadership believed they really had to get in. They needed yeah. a defensive alliance to protect them against Russian ambitions. In many ways, their first choice would have been France or Britain, but those countries were already allied with Russia in the Trump Triple Entente. Yeah. And so they went with Germany because it was industrially strong. It was militarily strong. It had no territorial interest in the Ottoman Empire. Far from it, Kaiser Wilhelm had twice visited the Ottoman Empire and declared Germany's friendship to the Ottomans and to the Muslim world more generally. Germany's eyes were firmly beyond the Ottoman world on the British in India if they saw imperial expansion. And so in that sense, they were a safer ally with a record of no territorial ambitions than the Ottoman Empire with which to enter the war. And sure. in a sense, what the Ottomans did was they took a punt. They bet on Germany winning. Had Germany won, the Ottomans would have been in a really good position to renegotiate territories lost to Britain and France over the previous decades, yeah. such as the British in Egypt or certain uh, Aegean islands that have been taken by Greece, uh, territory in the Caucasus seized by Russia. So, you know, it was a gamble. It was a very high-risk strategy, and it turned out to be the wrong one. But they weren't to know it in 1914. And the young Turks were rash, they were young, and they took that gamble and they paid the price. That was Eugene Rogan. His book, the Fall of the Ottomans is published by Penguin. You can find a link in the show notes. 
Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow for an episode on attempts to create utopian societies.